0: Study or series that we're working on called uh, conversations with Jesus uh, this sixth chapter has a statement we're going to get to finally today and uh, I'll just kind of let you know where we're going is uh, in the sixth chapter there's a pretty big buildup to this statement and that's why I've tried to spend some time here in that Jesus uh, uses a statement that he says I am and what is unique about that is that uh, Jesus begins to use that language about I am, and today we'll see some of the bread of life. There are six other occurrences in John where he uses that. I am uh, the bread of life. I am. The, and when we get through with this section here, we're going to then move through John a little quicker and uh, try to deal with those I am statements that Jesus made. As you may know, or if you don't, that's okay too, that I am, the way it's written, uh, is uh, reminding the Jewish people Leaders and people that Jesus is using the sacred name, Vayahi. I, I am. I am, who, you know, that's the sacred name that uh, uh, God gave to Moses, that Yahweh somehow translated, or Yahweh, but Vayahi, I, I am. And uh, this is going to get Jesus in a lot of trouble uh, because uh, he is claiming to be Yahweh, he is claiming to be God. In the flesh. so that, that'll be that'll be interesting, I think, for us to do. So I just kind of want to give you the lay of the land. I, I know there's a couple of people think that we're going to be in John till Jesus comes back, and because uh, we're moving slow. What what else is it? Could be that's right. It could be today. So don't be messing around. That's right. Behave. <laughs> in John chapter six, uh, you can go there at uh, verse 15. Uh, we looked last week at how Jesus if you will, saw our perceived life and things. And I thought it was pretty, pretty remarkable how he sees people and he he sees those issues that we looked at. But as we keep moving through this, I, there's another feature about Jesus in this conversation that he's had with the people and the religious leaders, and it's this, the clarity of Jesus. Clair- you know, you can see things, but they may not be clear. But Jesus not only sees things, but he's clear about uh, what he sees and what's going on. Now, clarity. I'm always uh, a bit uh, amused every semester. Uh, part of my job is to create syllabi, and uh, I know as a teacher uh, that that's the contract that I have uh, with my students. And in order to be clear about what I expect, the contract things gotten to where it's now five pages you know? uh, because I've got to put out every and you that are teachers or you know what I'm talking about. You got to be crystal clear. Because often students like to work the edges, right? They like to find, and, I, and I've had, there have been times when I've said, yep, that's what I said. I didn't mean that, but that's what's in there. So that's our contract. Clarity. Uh, and, and bless their heart, they're trying as hard as they can. I have a class of freshmen this semester, and, and I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm walking away going, what is it about turn it in at this place that you don't understand? <laughs> I mean, you know, just some, but what's happened, they're nervous, they're they're worried, they're afraid, they've heard of me, and uh, yeah, yeah, they've heard of me, I, I, I just tell them, you can take my class one of two ways, seriously or over, and uh, you know, uh, so they're nervous, and clarity is important, I, I'll never forget it, crossings here, one Wednesday night I was teaching, and going on, and you know, again, if you're not clear, uh, sometimes it causes problems for people. I, I'm amazed sometimes, and and uh, so I was talking and, and and in a hurry and discussing about Paul and his work and Paul's writings and all. And I said this, and this really corresponds to the Pauline uh, Pauline corpus of, of passages. And a person raised their hand. They said, and they were being serious. And and I understand because that's a little confusing. They said, uh, Cliff. I said, yeah who's Pauline? (laughs) Yeah. Pauline is probably the best way to say it, right? So clarity, being clear. Uh, We appreciate that in teachers. We appreciate that in people that communicate. We appreciate that in contracts. It's it's important for us, if you will, to have clarity. And so I want to look at this here. And just matter, verse 15, here we are. This idea of Jesus, I'm going to read a couple of verses here uh, in, in the text. It says, so Jesus, in verse 15, perceiving, I remember he's broken the bread and they've had this incredible meal and they've all eaten for free. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force. Notice that, by force. And to make him king, he withdrew to a mountain by himself. See, Jesus is perceiving this. They're about to take him and say, "Hey, if you can do this kind of stuff, you're going to be king around here. We're going to unseat Herod Antipas. We're going to we're going to move this thing along. You'll be king." Now, there is a an, an intervening event. I'm not going to spend any time on 16 to 25, where it's the matter of them getting in the boat and getting across to the other side. Jesus is there. The water stirred up. He he stills it. But then, at verse 26, Jesus answered and said to them, the disciples, or the people that had come. See, so when the crowd saw, verse 24, that Jesus was not there nor a disciple, they themselves got in small boats, came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, where did you, uh, where did when did you get here? You know, We didn't see you leave and we didn't see you walk on the water. <laughs> and this Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, seek Me not because you saw signs but because you ate of the bread and loaves and were filled. Now, here's a point of clarity I think Jesus is trying to bring to us, is to bring the point of clarity to correct expectations. Correct expectations. These people, uh, as they have experienced what Jesus has been doing, is that they are expecting Him now to be their King. And they're expecting that because their expectation is, if we get this king, we'll get free what? Food. Yeah, free, free food, free bread, free food. And it seems like that Jesus noticing this and knowing this is willing or desirous, if you will, to, to correct their expectations about who He is, about His king. We'll, and we'll look at that here just in a moment. But this idea of perceiving this, He then withdraws. There are several reasons here we'll look at in a moment. But I think that in following Jesus, that there is this understanding that sometimes we have to get our expectations of Jesus and who He is really lined up, not so much with churchianity, which we hear a lot of, or religiosity, but who Jesus really is. Stand Probably so, yeah, for the sake of recording, that free food probably was a little more important uh, because the the, the the lifestyle and the ability for resources, you bet. It was a good deal. Hey, I wouldn't mind it today, <laughs> right? So, yeah, but you're right. I think it meant a great deal more in that time because subsistence was basically the life that everyone lived, yeah. But how about our expectations of Jesus? Here they expect Him to be their king, and so the expectations that Jesus is trying to correct, we have them. We, 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 most of life, I would say, for many of us, is that we have a certain set of expectations. And when those don't happen, life really gets to be a problem, doesn't it? We begin to ask, why did this happen to me? Why did God let this? Well, again, we need to kind of back up and say, what was your expectation? What, what, what was your expectation of life? In this matter, these people expect him or want him, if you will, to be a king. When I was thinking about this, I thought about the way we see Jesus. Now, just look along here. Here are some pictures of the way that Jesus has been perceived throughout the centuries. This is a a picture of an African Jesus. This is members of the Coptic Church in Northern Africa. This is thought to be perhaps the oldest uh, picture. Uh, ever uh, or in circulation of Jesus that they perceived him. These people did not see him. They didn't, you know, have a photo of him. I'll show you the actual photo of Jesus here in a minute. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll recognize him. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, how that, you know, that people, when they think about Jesus, how they see him. The Coptic church saw him, if you will, it's okay, as like them. He, he was an African. He, he, he was uh, like, I mean, we, we know he wasn't from, from Sweden, okay? But, uh, but this idea of this, this is what Jesus looked like. To, this is a more of a Renaissance uh, view of Jesus. Uh, he looks uh, sort of like the blue eyes, a little blonde hair, and uh, this is the one that everybody thinks, uh, you know, this is the, the European Jesus. You know, if you ever watch the news and thought that Megyn Kelly got in real big trouble when she said that Jesus and Santa Claus were white guys, you hear that. Maybe you're, maybe you're, maybe you're not uh, hearing that. But, but really, I mean, a national anchor said, "Yeah, Jesus is a white guy," and uh, just like Santa Claus, I thought, "Oh my good." I mean, I, either, well, I won't say that. <laughs> but, but there's a picture of him, and you know, sort of the the Max von Sydow look, if y'all remember that, you know, the King of Kings, where he looks a hole right through you, you know, when you look at him. And then uh, this is uh, found in, a, in, a, in a, a church in Europe. And Jesus has got blonde hair. Didn't know if you knew that or not. Uh, kind of had blonde hair. And then, of course, we know this is the actual picture of Jesus. <laughs> I don't know why anybody's messing around. You yeah. know, you know it's interesting. This is the Solomon, S-A-L-L-M-A-N. And the church, or denomination, we're, we're a group of the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana. They own the copyrights to that picture. And it's on file in Anderson in a hermetically sealed jar. No, not really. <laughs> Marty, when he went to college up there. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's how we see Jesus. It, how do we see him? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with believing that Jesus is like us. I mean, we know he was Jewish. We know he came from the Middle East, darker skin, olive colored. Uh, you know, we, we know he didn't look like, uh, you know, some Western European person. But I think we get these, if you will, it's, it's a little frightening, if you will, sometimes I go on the Internet to read about how people, the expectations and thoughts they have about Jesus. I mean, it's frightening. I, I saw a site, I don't recommend it, it's the Anglo-Saxon Jesus. And you might get the drift of where they're going, you know. I mean, this, this is crazy stuff, how people have these expectations that He's going to be this way or that way. Now, there are two things here, I think, if I've got it right, uh, and I'm I'm way ahead of myself. Uh, let me ask you to consider there are two expectations that Jesus is dealing with. Number one, about His kingdom, about His kingdom. Now you don't have a blank there. You can just put it on underneath A. His kingdom. One of the expectations is that these people believe that Jesus's kingdom is earthly, or it's physical. Now again, that that's kind of understandable. If you study history, you realize that Israel has been in a lot of ways, the battleground in the Middle East, because it's the land bridge. If you understand. It, uh, is, Palestine is the land bridge between uh, Africa and Europe. You just go look at a map. It's the land bridge. I mean, armies have marched through there for millennia. Alexander, you know, uh, uh, Caesar, uh, all of these armies that, uh, you know, uh, 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 the guy from uh, Persia, the, uh, Artaxerxes, all of these massive armies marching through there. Well, they were tired of it, you know. But Jesus' kingdom, He said this later in John, if you go read John 18, when He said, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Isn't it interesting how that people here, and they're like us, want Jesus to throw off the Roman rule and throw off the political oppression and throw off all this other stuff, but not deal with themselves on the inside. I think we're the same. I think we think sometimes that if we could just get everything arranged in our culture, if we could get the right government going and the right things going like that, everybody could be fine. we fall right into this. When Jesus is saying, my kingdom is different than yours. It's not a physical kingdom is going to rule in. Uh, some people that have commented on this in, in John 6, 15 where Jesus actually came to set up a kingdom. There's a whole theory that Jesus came to set up a kingdom, they rejected Him, the church is the parenthesis age, and Jesus will come back. They choke on John 6.15 because Jesus knew they were about to make Him a king. He saw it. He was clear on this. And what does He do? He withdraws. So His kingdom is not something physical because Jesus is not just concerned, if you will, About the outward, he's concerned about the inner. I wrote in my notes like this, the Jewish people thought all of their problems were external and would be solved with a new political structure. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Some political structure? Some way of getting things arranged the way we like them? I'm not against that. I'm not against being a good citizen What I'm here to tell you is this. The history of the church of Jesus Christ is that it has flourished under every political system ever put on top of it. It doesn't matter. One semester, I think I may have said this, but some of you may have heard it or you weren't asleep. Uh, One semester, I'm looking in class while I'm teaching. On this corner, I have a young man who's from China, Kim Nan. Oh, I'm sorry, he was from Myanmar. Myanmar, which is Burma, which is the most locked-down country in the world, if you know anything about it. Kim Nan from Myanmar. Sweet little guy, little guy, the Golden Gloves champ of that country. Yeah, a couple of guys told him a, 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 a skunk was a cat. He believed him. And I told him later, you better hope this guy didn't kill you, because <laughs> he can <laughs> I'm looking at my class and there is Kim Nan from Myanmar, the most locked down country in the world, if you will, Christianity outlawed. And he comes to our school and I say, Kim, tell me your story, how you became a Christian in Myanmar. Another gal came from from, uh, Romania. Romania at one time said it was going to be the most atheistic country in the world. Said it was going to, it stamped out all the churches, burned down all the mosques, burned down all the the, the, uh, temples, everything, and said, This will be the first uh, 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 atheistic nation in the world. Her name was Helena Capo. And I said to Helena, How did you become a Christian in that country? She said, You know what, Cliff? She said, My parents would go down to the river to wash their clothes. And I don't remember the river. It's. You know, it's got four Z's and five X's in it. They need to buy a vowel. <clears throat> you know, it's one of those rivers. I mean, it, really. I'm... So she said, we're down there, they're washing their clothes. And said, as my parents did, there were Christians up in Macedonia floating gospel tracts down the river. Floating them. My parents picked one up and read it. And became followers of Jesus in the most atheistic country in the world. Finally, one student one semester I saw was Roman Sverlov and his wife, Jenya. They used to go to church here, son. Roman was a physicist in the university at Vladivostok and taught science. Was an atheist, basically. His mentor was killed in a car wreck, and he began to ask questions. Began to ask questions. What is life about? As a consequence, he met a Christian in Vladivostok who began to share Christ with him, he became a follower of Jesus. He realized that God had placed a call on his life. He quit teaching at the university and began to preach the gospel just on the street corner. He found his way somehow to Mid-America Christian University from Vladivostok. And I watched him in class, and then one day I'm eating lunch, and I'm going in the cafeteria, and I put my plates in there, and I look in there, and there's a physicist trained washing dishes to go to school. I I just about dropped him right there. You see, whether it's communism or whether it's totalitarianism, no matter what ism, that was a wasm is going to be one of these days. Whatever ism you think, it's going to be a wasm one of these days. Because the kingdom of Jesus can flourish and grow under any circumstances. If you know the story of China, at the Cultural Revolution, at the Cultural Revolution, there were about 2 to 3 million Christians that went underground in 1947, 1948. And when the the changes happened in China, the church came out from underground and it was over 20 million people. See, Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world. It can flourish. It can do what it needs to do under any circumstance. What I think we ought to do personally, now this is just per Cliff. Remember, the thoughts and opinions are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church. It's elders or leadership. It's me. I just think we need to place some emphasis on having faith and confidence in the gospel. That that's what's going to change people's lives. That's what's going to change our culture. I'm not against voting. I'm not against being involved politically. I'm just telling you this. Our work is in this kingdom called the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, it's not of this world. So when you're worrying about our country, when you're worrying, and we all are at different times. Let's think about how we can live the gospel. Let's put our attention on being followers of Jesus. Okay, that, that's the first thing. <clears throat> the second thing is look down at verse 26. Jesus said, you seek me not because you saw the signs and you know, believe, but because you ate and were filled. I think there's another expectation that Jesus is clarifying, not only His kingdom, but His being the servant of these people. And Jesus made a statement in, in Luke 10, 17. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. But these people think that Jesus is their meal ticket. And it seems that He's saying to them, look, the only reason you're here, the only, the only reason you're here is because what you've got from me. This is a real problem, I think, at times where Jesus, we come to Him because He's got things we want. We want peace. We want security. We want blessing. And a friend of mine, I heard him preach not long ago and made this statement. He said, where the problem with this is, is, you know, Jesus said He would give us peace and joy and those kind of things. But when that becomes the end of what we want, Jesus then becomes the means. Think of that for a second. Really what we want is joy and peace and security and like that. And Jesus just becomes the means to that. Let me tell you, if that is the way we're operating, where we're really liking and loving Jesus because He's giving us what we want and we feel better about life, if that ever stops, you may discover that you're not that interested in Jesus. I may discover that. We, 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 we see this all the time. We, we, get, we get disappointed with Jesus whenever our real focus our interest is, what can I get from Him? Does that make sense? What can I get from him? What will he get? The Bible is full of promises. I understand that. But it becomes whenever we think that Jesus becomes the means to our end. If those things don't happen, you'll probably want to read the book Philip Yancey wrote some years ago called Disappointment with God. Disappointment with God. I remember some years ago, uh, Becky, some of y'all know, uh, got cancer, and um, uh, we were uh, walking through that process like, like a lot of you have. And I remember in that process, uh, you know, we'd never had any big, big problems in our life. No sicknesses. You know, I'm, every day I'm one, you know, is this the day? <laughs> you know, now I'm old. Um, uh, you are too, you know. Um, but but we'd never really had any problems, and we never had any real struggles. I mean, you know, I'd... Not been sick and I mean she'd had lots of problems living with me, but you know other than that as that it and I remember when the doctor told us that she had cancer, it certainly hit us and we cried and and we felt bad like anybody would but I remember Becky and I talking and basically understanding that one of the expectations of being a follower of Jesus is that you can't expect. To miss problems you can't and i remember we i remember us talking and we both said this essentially we didn't ask the question why why did this happen to me we said why not are your expectations that you're going to get through this thing without any problems are your expectations that you're never going to have sorrow are you're never going to face disappointment. Or your kids may ne- are never going to break your heart. I mean, this is, comes back to this expectation thing that Jesus is saying. Look, you're following me just because you're getting bread. Listen, when the bread line cuts off, you're not going to follow me. This is a real dialectical tension. Okay. I, you knew I was going to say that word. <laughs> saw it yesterday, by the way. You see, there is a strain in Scripture that teaches us to believe God for what we need and to trust Him. There's also a strain in there that suggests that even though God will provide our need doesn't mean it's all going to be easy. Go read Hebrews eleven thirty six 36 to the end where it says that some people by faith conquered kingdoms, escaped the power of the sword, conquered kingdoms. It said others by faith were killed. By faith, they were sewn up in animal. I think we've done a little bit too much marketing here at times. We don't want to tell people the truth to say, hey, some of your expectations are way out of line here. Because what happens is, is when those things don't happen the way we expect them, what happens? We get discouraged, disappoint. Sometimes we get mad, right? I've been going to church. I've been. To so I just want to ask you something here. On this, what about this? What if this week you identify one specific expectation you have about Jesus and life that does not appear to be happening? I bet you could find one of those pretty quick. And, and then that and see if this is something that the life and teachings of Jesus can support. I'm not saying that we don't have expectations. I'm just simply saying let, let's let's run these through the grist of what the scriptures tell us, because if we don't, we're going to Start having expectations like these people that Jesus is going to have to deal with David. You think that we should still have peace, yeah. When he's saying, should we still have peace, about what? Okay. Peace that he's with us. Peace that in the situation he will never leave us or ever forsake us. Peace that in the midst of the storm we will be taken care of. How that means, it doesn't mean we're going to get, right? I wish I had the picture my dad had in his office. The, the name of the picture was Peace. And it was a little bird underneath a ledge of a lighthouse where the storm was raging. I think sometimes we think peace means no storm, no trouble, no problems, no difficulty, where it's peace in the storm. What is our peace? Again, you know, Jesus is the said, said to him. Remember, Jesus is not the means to the end. Jesus is the end. He's the end. That's what we're about. His presence, his care, his love for us. Does is, is that make sense, Dave? I wish I could make it always happy. You know, peace is lots different than happiness. But but we're just I I, I see over and over. I think that's why Yancey wrote that book, disappointment with God because. People get this idea that this is the way it's going to be, and then when it isn't that way, bail, right? All right, second thing, Jesus, here in clarity. This has been amazing to me. I've studied this scripture for years, but where Jesus calls people to God's work. Watch this. Verse 27, after talking about, you know, you're just here for the food. Notice this in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes. But, leading verb is still in place. Do not work for the food which perishes. But, now the leading verb is what? Work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give, and interesting, work, give, for on Him the Father has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work The works of God. Now notice that that's plural. Underline if you have a good translation here, I think. What must we do that we may do the works of God? And look what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is the work of God. Singular. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Interesting word plays going on here. That Jesus calls, if you will, people to God's work. He said, don't work for the food that perishes, for the things that are going away, for the things that are passing away. In other words, but work, if you will, for the food that the Son will give you that is for eternal life. Let's look at that. What does the word work mean? Well, the work means to be active or exert oneself. To be active or to exert oneself. Now, you know what? When we hear the word work because we're evangelicals and we believe in justification by faith, this work word wears us out or gets us nervous, doesn't it? Let me draw you a distinction here. Write this down, if you will. I draw, here, draw a distinction here. Dallas Willard made this brilliant distinction when he said this. The New Testament c- condemns earning. The New Testament condemns earning with God. But the New Testament requires effort with God. Just hold on. Just think of it. You say, well, that's your plan. No, Listen. The New Testament condemns earning, that I can do enough to be good enough, to work enough, to do enough things to become acceptable to God. But what that's done is it's created incredible passivity with people. In other words, there's nothing that I do. Nothing. Nothing at all. And Willard says, no, no, that's not true. Earning is condemned. Effort is required. Because Jesus says, the leading verb, "Do not work for the food which perishes, but work if you will for the food which endures to eternal life." And then He defines what the work of God is. What is the work of God here? He says it there, verse twenty-nine. Believe. To what? Believe. To believe. Let's look at that for a second. To believe. This is the work. This is the work. Does it? Does it? Does it require me to get engaged, involved, if you will? Jesus knows the crowd misunderstands because they go, well, what do we have to do? What's the works? All these things we can accumulate, we can start doing, and then we'll, we'll be working for the food. No, He says, no, it's one thing. Here's the work. Believe. Now, what's interesting about this thought, I think, is this. When He says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Again, you know, when I'm working with my students and we're discussing matters, language has got a way of, We need some definition, right? If people say to me, sometimes they'll say to me or my students will say to me, Cliff, I just accepted Jesus into my life. And I'll say this, as what? (laughs) I have no idea what you mean. What do you mean you accepted Jesus into your life, right? What does that mean? I mean, I don't know. I'm not being funny with them. I'm not trying to be cantankerous. Well, maybe a little bit. (laughs) I'm just... I'm trying to make them think a little bit and say, what have you accepted him as? What is this word believe? Trust. Faith. You know, we're from the great Protestant tradition of Reformation that we believe that we're justified by faith apart from works. We're down with that. We believe that. The question always in my mind is, what is belief? What is faith? What is What is, I told you my syllabi, when I, some years ago I wrote one, I wasn't clear, I said, that you have to turn your work in on time. Boy, was that a disastrous semester. (laughs) You know why? Nothing clear. (laughs) Nothing clear. My syllabi now says, your assignment is due at the beginning of class on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whenever it's due at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. (laughs) Myron, you know what I'm talking about. Don Amazel, hey, boy, I, it's just lay it out. Central standard time in the state of, you know, whatever. Uh, oh, I, I wasn't clear. And, oh, my goodness, that was a wild semester. Turn it in on time. Well, you, def, you decide. Terrible. What does it mean to believe? <clears throat> what does it mean to believe? Let me give you something here, uh, and I'll just give you three real quick bullet points here. I ran out of time this morning. I was going to put on your handout, but here it is. The Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those guys, taught that faith had three features to it. Because you know, you can go look at it later, in James 2.19, the devils believe. There's a faith that devils have. You know that, right? It's in 2.19. It's the same word, pistou. A friend of mine asked me one time, Cliff, that word's got to be a different word in Greek. Nope. Same word. The devil's believe. Same word is found in John three sixteen. Believe. But there's something about faith that's understood here is this. Number one, faith that Jesus is speaking about here begins with what we call notitia. N-O-T-I-A. I'm going to get all Latin on you here. However, do not send me something in Latin. I never took any Latin. Okay? Greek and Hebrew is it. Notitia. Notitia means that any faith or belief or trust begins... With a notion, an idea that I grasp. Faith has to begin with a notion or an idea that I grasp. I understand it. That's why we work hard and we teach the Bible or we we are trying to communicate with people. Where I was, do you understand it? Is that clear to you what that means? That's notitia. Look, here's a, For instance, aviation travel is the safest form of travel in the world, right? I, I know that. I, I grasp that. When I hear aviation, I know we're talking about commercial airlines. Second, faith that this is referring to has ascensia, A S S E N S I A. Ascensia, A S S E N S I A. Ascensia, the word ascent, I agree. So I heard or understand the statement. Commercial aviation is the safest way to travel in the world. I hear that. I understand what those words mean. Now, I agree with it. I bring agreement. I assent, or it's I agree with it. So I say, I agree that the NTSB has determined that commercial aviation is the safest way to travel in the world. Now, here's where most of the Reformers say that unless you have this third feature, you don't have biblical faith. Unless you have this third feature, here it is. Fiducia. F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Fiducia. Fiducia means trust. If you ever have fiduciary responsibilities for a company, they are entrusting those finances to you. You have a responsibility to oversee them, to take care of them, to be careful with them, to execute the plan as given to you. Fiducia. Fiducia is trust to the point of acting. Trust to the point of acting. So guess what? If I believe that aviation, commercial in America, is the safest travel in the world, and I agree with the facts that the NTSB says that, what will I do? Get on an airplane. I've had this conversation before with my mom. She agrees with one and two. <laughs> and I say, you you know this? You agree with this? And you goes, Yeah. Let's go get on your plane. Not on your life. <laughs> See, she, 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 she satisfies the first two. But it's that last one that distinguishes faith, that word, from what the devils do. Do they know that Jesus is the Son of God? They know that. Do they agree with that? They believe it. They shudder. It doesn't do anything to their actions. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because we have sort of bought the idea that if I just believe something, but if I don't believe it to the point of acting, that's why Jesus called it a work. It has to work its way out. And there are times when I've had to say, you know what, I believe this, I, I understand it, but I don't want to do it, but in order for me to live in faith, I'm going to do it. That's the effort. Remember, Willard said, it takes effort. John Wesley uh, commented on this and, and made, I thought, some fascinating examples or, or ideas about this. W- Wesley often, when he was dealing with faith or this word here, would comment on this based on, and on... Go to your table of contents of your Bible and find the book of Galatians. Or on your tablet or right there by your grocery list you're making. And uh, Hey, I'm okay with that. Uh, Galatians 11.08... Look over at Galatians, this, this verse. This is one of my life verses as I think about this concept or this idea. <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, yeah, can't read my mind. To be a short read. Uh, Galatians 5, chapter 5. <clears throat> chapter 5. Here, here's, what, here's what Wesley, when he commented on this idea about faith that he said. Look, look at Galatians chapter 5. Verse six for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Look at that. Circumcision of anything, uncircumcision, uncircumcision of anything, what matters? Faith working through. Wesley took the Reformers on in this regard. He said this. He believed that some of the Reformers went too far. They located faith in just concepts and ideas. And Wesley said, faith must always be energized with love. In fact, he made this statement that faith, listen to this, this is a radical thought, faith is the handmaiden of, of love. He say it this way if my faith isn't creating or causing love, that's not the work of God. Hear it again. If my faith is not working in the way and through to love, it's not the work of God. You know, when I was in college, I, I've told you before. When I first started studying Greek and started learning the Bible, and I knew all these things, notitia, I agreed with all of them, essentia, I would go to Christian bookstores and hang out in the theology section to pick a fight. (laughs) Oh, so you're reading that book, huh? Well, you know, that eschatological understanding, and they just go, I just want to buy a book. I'm telling you, I'm so thankful God had mercy on me. My faith made me cantankerous. It made me arrogant. It made me think I knew it all, just ask me. It did almost everything but create love. John Christostom, the great church father, said, What this means is that faith is energized by love. That's the kind of work of God I want to be a part of. When Jesus said, this is it. I'm asking myself, I'm more. you know, as I get older and I'm trying to work through this, I'm saying, okay, Cliff, you know these things, you believe these things, you understand these things. Is any of this creating a greater love for God and others? If it isn't, we got a problem. And I'm looking at my life. And I'm asking, is my faith being energized, empowered, by love. Hmm. Maybe I and you, maybe we maybe we all say, Look, I, I believe these things, Letitia. I agree with him, Asentia. But is it working out that my faith is working through love? Well, we in my Bible said on Friday morning, and we're gonna quit here in just a minute, but in my Bible said on Friday morning, we just tore the room up. We're talking about Jesus saying that your faith, Cliff, should cause you to pray for your enemies. I haven't been doing that, not lately. And I got a long list now, it's getting longer. As this world gets crazier in yours, and I, and I sense in me sometimes, and listen, don't, don't, don't get hung, hung up on this now. I, I said this. Loving my enemy doesn't mean I let them abuse and destroy other people because that other person over there is my neighbor too. This is dialectical. It's complicated. Loving my enemy, letting God work through me to love my enemy doesn't mean I let that enemy now destroy this person because they're my neighbor too, right? But how about it? Is is that the way we see faith as working through love? Or do we see faith as the accumulation of knowledge and information and understanding? We can win our fights. We can now win our, uh, if you will, our battles with people on what we believe. Do you see this in life? Faith that is energized by love. That the characteristic of coming out of me, coming out of you, in the exercise of my faith, is that it's love? And so Wesley said, "Faith is the handmaiden. You haven't got to the goal yet. Faith is the handmaiden of love. You know what that word handmaid means? It means servant. It means someone that assists someone else. So Jesus is saying, faith here, like John Wesley or, or like Paul did, is it? So what? What if this week? What? Just look at this way. What if this week we accepted and act on the truth that our faith is to express itself in love? Real faith." How can you express your faith and love this week? Listen, it might be a neighbor. It might be a family member. But your faith and my faith, guys, if it's real, if it's operating, has to express itself. And like Paul said, nothing matters but that. As I look at my life, as I look at living for Jesus, I would say that is all that matters. Is that operating in me like that? Is it energized? It would change our life. It might change our city. It might start changing our world. If we didn't see faith just as the accumulation of knowledge or information or thoughts or ideas, but laid this test on it and said, Is my faith working through love? Well, I'm not going to finish today. (laughs) I know. It happens all the time. But I want you to think with me just for a minute before we go. We're We're going to pray. I just want you to ask yourself this. Would you be willing, would you be willing to ask Jesus to clarify your expectations? Just help you begin to work through some of those expectations you have. And then begin to say, Jesus, would you help me understand that faith... My faith is to be energized by love, or nothing else matters. That's what Paul said, nothing else matters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, these are big ideas, and uh, I pray that you'll help us. You'll help us to have the clarity that Jesus has, where he says, work the work of God. And that work, it takes effort, it takes energy, the energy of love to allow faith to be expressed through love. Guard us from trying to earn. We know that's condemned. But remind us that there is effort. There is effort in this matter of allowing this faith to work in love. Guard us from unrealistic and unbiblical expectations and help us to Place our heart and lives in your care. We know that's the safe and wonderful place to be. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.